Well, Brent is gay, and Kaylin's gay, and Clark is gay, and Ryan's gay, and Adam's gay. It's Homo Superior. Welcome to Homo Superior's Creator Crush series. I'm Kaylin Batia. Along with me is Brent Wingate, whose upcoming autobiography, Charcuterie Board to Death, can be found nowhere because he hasn't written it yet. I've gotten a lot of interest. Netflix is trying to do a deal with me, but they don't produce cookbooks yet. All right, so Creator Crush is an interview series where we chat with our favorite comic book creators, learning more about their work, their thoughts in the industry, and what makes them so darn special. Today, we're joined by the lovely and talented Jarrett Melendez, the writer and co-creator of Chef's Kiss, published by Oni Press. Jarrett's also a regular contributor to Epicurious, Bon Appetit, and Food 52. And we had the pleasure of meeting Jarrett in person recently at FlameCon in New York City. Jarrett, it's just so great to have you on today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, Jarrett, you, you've gone from, you know, cook to food editor, writer, uh, and just this year, Chef's Kiss come out. So now you're graphic novel creator. Um, you know, do you feel like, what, what comes easier for you? Is it, is it the writing or is it the cooking? Was one more natural than the other? Or are there some ways in which those are kind of complementary? That's a good question. I feel like I love both equally. Um, like they're both definitely big parts of who I am. Um, you know, I've always I've always loved writing since I was a little kid. Um, I've also loved cooking since I was a little kid. Um, they just were two skills that I kind of latched onto really early on and just kind of stuck with them. Um, never actually saw myself working in uh, food or writing um, as a kid because both seemed very stressful and I was right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, I would never work in a kitchen again, um, but I do love what I do as a food editor and as a recipe developer. Um, you know, I like that work a lot because it's it's kind of on my own time. Um, you know, there's no, there's no tickets being called in. There's no waitresses coming back with, you know, wrong orders. There's no sushi. No one, no one is problem. expediting your opinion pieces. Yeah, no one's exactly. asking for your manager. Yeah. yeah. There's no sous chef with a glamorous Coke problem. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of other people, people glamorous. A lot of people in food, I think, <clears throat> who get into it, it's hugely connected to their family. Uh, you know, whoever kind of taught them early on whereas writing can be a little bit more solitary of an experience. Did you have any kind of early influences in either of those that really kicked you off? Um, my mom was really the, the, the biggest uh, influence in terms of cooking. Um, you know, she, she taught me to make scrambled eggs when I was like eight years old. That was the first thing I ever learned how to make. Um, funny enough, like a year or two before that she was making flan and I, burned the hell out of my like little seven, six or seven year old fingers no. on caramel. Cause I was like, wow, caramel, I should taste some. And it was above boiling water temperature. So just really blistered. The oh, but, but that sugar. melted sugar, it's so easy to wipe off too. Oh yeah. Yeah. It definitely didn't stick to me or anything. Um, so you'd think that like, I would be traumatized from wanting to be in the kitchen, but uh, no. No, a year year later, she was teaching me how to do stuff, and I was learning things. And then she would always say, like, that I made family recipes better than she did, which I think was her way of just getting me to cook so that she didn't have to. No, oh, you're so good at it. No, why don't you take over on this? Yeah, it's like, no, you're you you make this better. You're much more patient than I am. And I'm like, am I? <laughs> I love that your secret origin is instead of a radioactive spider, it was like really scalding hot caramel that turns yeah. you into the superhero that you are now. Yeah. <laughs> That's Sugar Man's origin story. Right? <laughs> He's sweeter than crime. Yeah. Um, so let's get into Chef's Kiss. Um, we picked it up at FlameCon, as, uh, as I mentioned. Uh, we thought it was absolutely delightful. But why don't you give our listeners your elevator pitch for the story? I mean, the, the briefest possible pitch is that it's a queer romance set in a restaurant. Um, that is that is like the just the barest bones version of what the story is. But really, it's about, um, you know, finding your own path, figuring out what makes you happy, um, figuring out if money is more important than just like job, job satisfaction. Um, 
you know, the, the, the main character, Ben kind of goes through like a, a big, big change where he, he thought that he was doing everything he needed to do to get a good job. Um, didn't end up getting that job for, for, I feel like pretty relatable reasons. Uh, he didn't have any professional experience. And so desperately he gets a kitchen job. Um, and, uh, and it kind of goes from there. I, I, I really, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I felt that was one of the more relatable things in the book, um, is that, you know, when you're in college, you're 18, 19, 20, you are, uh, expected to choose your career path and you're not a fully formed human yet. You know, um, just because you chose something in university or even grad school doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be your path. It certainly was, you know, my, my experience, but was there anything autobiographical about Ben's sort of decision, his choices uh, that you put into the, into the work? The, the, um, the thing is I actually dropped out of college um, in the middle of my junior year. Um, And so similarly, like, I didn't know, I didn't have a plan. Um, You know, I, I, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I kind of moved, um, I moved to Hiroshima for a few months. Whoa, really? (laughs) Yeah. um, I was a visiting scholar at a university there. um, And I was just kind of like talking to them about, it was uh, talking to university students about like my everyday life back home and like, you know, what it was like going to a university that was like, it, I went to Northeastern University and the, the place I went to is um, uh, Hiroshima Kokusai Gakuin Daigaku. So it's, it's a long name that basically means, literally means Hiroshima International Campus University. I, it's not a, not a super catchy name. Um, it just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it really does. Uh, you can just tack on of Latter-day Saints to the end. <laughs> Exactly. Um, but my professor um, during my study abroad year um, started teaching at this small university in Hiroshima. And he was like, you know, these kids, it's a really rural town, really rural school, um, even though it's a college. And uh, you know, none of these kids have like really even been out of the area, let alone the mm-hmm. country. They could really use like an outsider's perspective. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it would be cool if you just came and like told them what your views were of like the outside world, your views of Japan, and like just kind of just give them a different perspective that they might not have ever encountered before. Um, So I did that. And I was there for three or four months. And then I really didn't have a plan after that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I worked in a kitchen for a little bit. And that's about where the the similarities, um, you know, end because I did not meet a strapping uh, Scandinavian descent yeah. <laughs> man who swept me off my feet. <laughs> Liam is very dreamy. We'll just say that. Yeah. I don't. I don't know why you had to make a bee costume so sexy. Uh, it was out of the blue and unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, I'm mad though. Yeah, I'm not mad. <laughs> not mad at all. Yeah. Who knew a bee uh, could be so hot? So I think uh, that you know your your travel your experience in Hiroshima is very interesting. Um, what was, were there any culture shocks that you kind of experienced there, you know, as they relate to either your food or the kind of, uh, comics that you're consuming? Was there anything that was big for you at the time that no changed the way you started thinking about things? Not that trip. So that was actually my second time living in Japan. Um, I lived there, I lived in a, a small town outside of Tokyo, um, for a year doing study abroad. So that was my Northeastern is a five-year school. So I did my third year abroad and then I did half of my fourth year and then I dropped out. Um, So um, no, the Hiroshima trip, there was no real culture shock. It was more challenging than the first time I went because uh, nobody outside of like my host mom and a couple of the professors really spoke English like at all, period. Yeah. so it was just like, oh, time to level up on Japanese. So like, it was just stumbling my way through um, conversations and just like figuring out creative ways to describe what I was trying to say right. and hoping that we would come to the right word. <laughs> yeah, you come around with the circuitous path. You, yep. everything, it's like a game of taboo. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they all probably thought I was a maniac. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Are you still fluent? Uh, yeah, pretty pretty fluent. Um, I it. 
it's hard to like like if you were to ask me to say something right now like i could probably say like some stuff um but like when i'm back in the country like and i'm in the thick of it and it's like all around me yeah it's so it comes back so much easier um but you know i i can still like translate simple books and stuff like that um a while back i took the the food wars official cookbook which is like a little manga sized volume with like uh, 20 or 30 recipes in it and I, i translated it for my for my ex for christmas one year um, were you inspired by, um, you know, any, cause I think there's a lot that's in this story that reminds me of, uh, the way food's portrayed in manga. And, um, I also get some of the vibes of like some of the great food films like Babette's Feast, or, um, I really enjoy, you know, her chef that, that there's both the joy and kind of the, um, the, the passion that's required to really make it in these kinds of careers. Um, were there any kind of, um, was there any food fiction that was kind of leaning heavily on the way you envisioned this story unfolding? Or was it like Eat, Pray, Love or the romantic comedies that you wanted to... Or Ratatouille, yeah. like a rat on top of uh, you know <laughs> Ben's head. Not like, enough yeah. rats in this story. Yeah, there could have been more rats. You guys yeah. are right. <laughs> um, no, I think like we took a little bit of inspiration from an older anime called um, uh, Yakitate Japan. It's from like 2000 and it's early 2000s. I think it ended in 2006 or maybe it started in 2006. Anyway, it's um, it's it's a, an anime about a kid that wants to create a signature bread for Japan. Um, and the opening is like, you know, there's there's French bread, there's Italian bread, like all these countries have like their signature breads that they're Mm -hmm. known for, but Japan not being a primarily bread eating country um, doesn't have that, you know, they get their starch from rice um, usually. So um, that's kind of like the, like his goal is to come up with, and he's come up with like dozens and dozens of recipes and he's like still not, not perfected it. Um, And they're all like, different types of bread, but like with a Japanese spin on it. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's really fun. The reactions that people have when they eat his food are like hysterical. So I, I wanted to kind of like make something that felt a little bit like that, but was more of a rom-com instead of like a shonen manga. Yeah. Without the, you know, I don't want to spoil it for any of the listeners, but there is a huge, there's obviously a huge part that food plays in this story you know, when you're thinking about building out and telling stories, how much of it is I've got this end point goal that I'm, I'm thinking about and the steps that I want to get there, or, you know, does it kind of, it's it, is it slice of life? You know, how does it just unfold naturally? So I, I did a, um, a writing comics panel kind of recently. And I realized that like, sometimes my process is like really, really circuitous. Sometimes it will be exactly, you know, just I've got a character in mind and I've got a journey that I want them to go on. And now I'm just going to like figure out what that is. Sometimes it's like a line will come to me, just like a piece of dialogue that is not attached to anything. And I'll be like, oh, that's really good. And I'll write it down and I'll build a whole story from just like one line of dialogue. Um you know, and it's obviously it's more complicated than that because like there's characters and like they're all of their arcs and stuff. And, you know, the, the, it takes on kind of a life of its own, but sometimes it starts just as simple as like a piece of dialogue. Sometimes that piece of dialogue doesn't even end up in the final thing. You know, it just, it's the inspiration for. Were there any of the recipes in this that had that same feeling to it that, oh, I want to show, here's how I can utilize sweet potatoes or yeah so i've always wanted to do four volumes of this um and this takes place in the fall so all the all the recipes are seasonally appropriate um and um you know i i use my food background to develop these recipes specifically for this book so like these are my recipes um and uh yeah that i i wanted to have like you know, kind of a side and appetizer, like small dishes and like a main course and a dessert. And, and so like, if you, if you had the recipes for all four or five things in this, you'd have like a full four or five course meal. And I thought that that was kind of like fun, like kind of beginning, middle and end 
Well, I love the, at the ending, having the recipes themselves in the same way you'd have like an alternate cover or here's some of the initial sketches. I think that's a, an excellent bonus addition. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would, I would probably do that for any book that I had that I do that has like food heavily um, involved in it. So um, going into like the dishes themselves, it's really cool that uh, they're your dishes. I love, I love hearing that. And I'm also, I'm vegetarian. So I love that the restaurant itself was vegetarian. So, but um, you know, Ben's sort of challenges, you know, before he can become like part of the restaurant, they felt like sort of quests or trials, like maybe, you know, Hercules is like, you know, 12 tasks or more likely a video game and their levels. Was that, was that deliberate on your part or, or Brent and I just, bunch of nerds no no that that's definitely deliberate i i it, it was kind of like it was a way to kind of give the story a little bit more of like a, a quest line instead of just like strictly slice of life um and uh and it, it it kind of helped build the narrative because it's like all right well like his conflict is that he has to do these recipes every single week so he's got to like learn a whole new thing that's and make it restaurant quality um, just being kind of like an amateur home cook. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, he's got some natural ability and he, you know, has real interest in cooking and stuff. So he, he does make it through the trials. It's just like, I just wanted something like I wanted some kind of challenge there. And I, I think that's kind of like, that's the little scrap of shonen manga that's in there. And it's like, yeah. Oh, you must, you must like learn these things and build up your skills and, you know, boost your power level, et cetera, et cetera, before you can become a true chef. And that that's his, that's one of his journeys that he goes on. Do you feel like you set an unrealistic standard for young chefs who think they can come in and add something that the top, the head chef missed to fix the recipe. They will learn very quickly that that's not okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is a work of fiction. Yeah. That was, that seemed, that seemed uh, wonderful and dangerous at the yes. same time. Uh, but you mentioned slice of life. So, um, you know, chefs, cause it, it reminded me a lot of kind of a ha hangout comedy or sitcom in some ways, specifically with Ben and his roommates, uh, his love interest with Liam, the other chefs, you know, for me, one of the most iconic hangout comedies of all time, because I'm queer, uh, was Sex and the City. I grew up with it, you know, and recently Sex and the City had a sequel and just like that. Let's say you were able to do a sequel where these characters are 20 years in the future. It's Chef's Kiss and just like that or whatever you want to call it. Where do you think these characters would be 20 years from now? And they're in their like late 30s, early 40s. Oh, that's a good question. Davis would still be still be running the restaurant i think but maybe i kind of have him at like early 40s um i think as far as his age so he'd be he'd be getting into his 60s 20 years later so he'd probably be like i don't know if he i don't know if that character would ever retire i think he would die in the kitchen <laughs> um <laughs> so yeah fall into his booyah base yeah. um yeah. his vegetarian booyah base yeah. i should say yeah um I could see, I could see uh, Liam and Ben being a married couple running their own place. Um, uh, I could definitely see that. I could see um, Emmy running her own bakery as the pastry chef. Yeah. Um, I feel like Mel would be sticking around. Uh, he, he's seen, I don't know why I get the sense of loyalty from him. Yeah, I could see Mel taking Liam's place as the sous chef. And and maybe even head chef if like if Davis is taking a step back. Um Rachel, my God. I don't know what she would be doing. Probably just hanging out. She probably I could see her, <laughs> I could see her finally being done with her like education journey and just like just works at the restaurant with Liam and Ben. Like she yeah. forever ships them. <laughs> uh liz definitely like a, a marketing and fitness mogul and uh i feel like she'd be too busy to come back like she's too oh you think you're too good for chef's kiss and like that yeah, yeah she'd have like equinox <laughs> but like even more like higher level with like a giant yoga studio part of it right yeah yeah, she's she would be the Davis of the fitness industry. <laughs> yes, absolutely. With a pig as an icon or a mascot. Yeah. <laughs> and a Peloton is gonna murder someone in this story. <laughs> 
Well, I think one of the other important features about Chef's Table, or sorry, Chef's Kiss, is the representation you made a central part of the story. Um, do you have any concerns about the focus of your story being about a sloppy pig? Um, and will you address the criticism that there aren't enough otters, uh, giraffes, or bears? <laughs> I, can we apologize for this question? Can we just apologize? All right, let, and then you can answer. You, you don't have to answer that question, but the fans are asking. <laughs> <laughs> Clarify Brent's asking for himself. I'm a fan. Yeah, exactly. A she, fan was, asking. she was too stunned to talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I do want to I do want to talk some uh about your kind of food-based work. Um so let's say you're throwing a dinner party. What are the elements that you think are essential? Is there anything you hate people doing as hosts or guests that have no place? And in a in a in one a dinner of yours, stay out of my kitchen. A thousand percent. You're not helping by being here. <laughs> yeah, like I I always appreciate when people are like, "Oh, is there anything I can do?" And it's like, no. Go have a glass uh, of wine. Chill yeah, out. Yeah. Like no. Like I'm I am doing this work to like make you all feel welcome in my home. Like I am entertaining you. Get out of my way. And then I'll join you when I'm done and it'll be nice. Um, but yeah, in, in the meantime, it's like, no. Also, please don't just like lean against my sink while I'm like moving around the kitchen like, yeah. and, and talk to me. Like I can hear you from the other side of the room. It's not that big a kitchen. It's amazing how if you're doing something, one person shows up to just watch what you're doing and then another person shows up and then you've got eight people all in one corner. That's the most important. Somehow you found the most important corner of your room. Yep. Uh, just by you know frying some onions and garlic yeah yeah exactly like oh it smells so good and it's like it's it's two ingredients like i get it does smell good like you're not wrong but what are we doing here <laughs> when, you, when you host do you like to have it be a you know kind of full sit down here's individual courses like you're in a restaurant affair do you like a more family style approach or what what is the peak enjoyment for you you know, when hosting? I always like the idea of like a multi-course thing, but I don't like doing it myself because I do like actually like sitting and like eating after. So I usually will do family style. Um, and sometimes we'll just like make a bunch of appetizers and just set them out on a table with small plates so people can like stand over there while I'm preparing whatever the main course is um, and eat. But yeah, family style is usually what I go for. Um, I do like plating sometimes, though. So, so I, it just depends on my mood and like what the what the menu is. Um, so, well, speaking of your plating, so uh, on your Instagram, uh, we can see a lot of your uh, different uh, attempts at food plating. As an amateur home cook myself, I you know have gone to ridiculous lengths in order to get a good food shot. Are there any ridiculous things you've done to make sure you got better lighting or put things at a right angle or replate multiple times just so you get something that looks nice? I've definitely replated multiple times. Um, I have definitely, I bought a ring light at one point, uh, which is fine. Uh, what, it was um, an onion ring light? Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Um, the best lighting that we have in our apartment is like in the living room and, um, we we're on the second floor, but we have an enclosed porch. Um, and so like that gets tons and tons of sun. So I will very frequently like throw a pretty cutting board onto like this little ledge, um, where the windows are on the, on the enclosed porch and then plate there and then like try and like get an angle so you can't see like all the shit that's out on our <laughs> like because we just store stuff out there like seasonal stuff um so, like all right let's hide these camping chairs in the background and then this like this pile of toasters that i tested last year <laughs> yeah it's always funny when you set up a shot and then you've got some angle 
And then you look in the background and it's a, you've got a cardboard cutout of Hillary Clinton that you need to move or something, <laughs> something ridiculous is in the background. You're like, why do I still have this? Why is that <laughs> sling still there? Yeah. Oh, now I know why it's still there. Yeah. Um, we all so know so, why it's still there. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so we're, we are we are ostensibly, we are an X-Men podcast first and foremost, uh, but obviously we talk about a lot of other uh, graphic novels and comic books, but we got to ask you, you're having a fantasy dinner, you've got four st- spots available at your dinner party, and you can bring any four X-Men characters you want. Who are you inviting? Ooh. We would say they can be living or dead, but dead doesn't matter anymore. So oh, yeah, that's they're all resurrected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, dang. I feel like Nightcrawler would be like the perfect guest, super polite. Even though he smells like brimstone. He has to walk in the front door. Yeah. 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 No, he no says grace. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. Um, let's see. Oh man, this is a tough one because this is like such a different question. Like, who are your favorite X Men? Um, I mean, I'd have to invite Angel just to help clean up afterwards. You could say that I used air quotes because yeah. the cleanup happens the next day after he's yeah. left. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then I mean, I do love Storm. I feel like Storm would also be a surprisingly good guest. She's also, so polite and regal, right? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like and if then, she didn't like what you made, you wouldn't know. She would she'd be very good at hiding and being like just gracious about yeah. what you served. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh gosh. God, I don't know who else. I mean, I guess I guess at least Iceman, just so that there is at least one verified gay there. <laughs> besides himself <laughs> and you, can, you don't need to ask him to bring ice he's already bringing it with yeah. him so that's perfect yeah yeah uh, you always need more ice yeah um so in general the i think you know kind of the idea of writing is if you're if you're writing uh for an audience in in pop culture it's you want to take people on a mental journey and if you but if you're a reader of say recipes you want to get to the recipe as soon as possible. How do you think about the balance between knowing that I'm, I'm trying to write text to, to tell you guys a story, to make you excited about the food that you wanna make versus the, uh, you know, the, you know the person at the end is like, just give me the goddamn risotto recipe. I, I wanna get to that now. Yeah, the frustrating thing about that is that SEO has become such a like monster. Um, that like a lot of those people just have those long-winded nonsense things, not because of any like actual sentimentality, but because they're just repeating keywords so that they show up higher in search. So it's like, yeah. So I get why they do it. And a lot of people that run, that run like smaller sites or like personal sites with recipes have gotten, gotten wise and just had the, like the little button that says skip to the recipe because they know nobody wants to read 4,000 words on why their grandma's death always reminds them of this cornbread, you know, like <laughs> it's like four um, pages down, you finally getting to the goddamn yeah. recipe. Yeah. yeah. It's like a four ingredient, 10 minute recipe. And it, t- it literally took longer to read the diatribe than, than. Right. Yeah. I find all of that very frustrating. Um, and so when I, you know, like for Epicurious, it's, it's one thing because like, we just, the recipes are just on their own thing. There's a short head note, like there's no, thing to get through we also do write stories about a lot of recipes but those are separate completely um and even those stories tend to be like 500 a thousand words tops like usually a pretty quick read um because we know people don't want to just be like reading and reading and reading before they just just tell me how to make the fucking cream pie like let's yeah. go. <laughs> i'm sure there are other sites they can go to for that as well um <laughs> So how long does it take for you to develop a recipe? Um, like, is there any point where you you get a sense for yourself, and maybe this is true of, of writing as well, that you just feel like, all right, it's complete. I know that this is done. It depends, right? Like if it's if it's like a really sciencey recipe and like I'm like really trying to make something like 
brand brand new that's not just kind of like oh well i know the ratios for like butter sugar milk whatever for for making like this kind of bread but i just want to make this kind of bread with this kind of spin on it um you know those are really easy to do because it's just like oh well i i know like how much of this to take out because i'm putting this in um you know, like I know that if I want to use like maple syrup as my sweetener instead of sugar, like I have to remember that that's going to create more moisture, you know, like this little stuff like that that you have to right. think about. So that kind of stuff becomes more like second nature and it's really easy to just kind of make riffs on kind of foundational recipes. Um, but creating like something brand new from scratch is like, it can be a little trickier. Like sometimes it takes like, weeks of just making it again and again and again until you just get the right like just the right thing like i, I developed a um a recipe for chilaquiles Ooh, um chilaquiles. yeah same um i did that for for epicurious it was like i think the first original recipe i developed for them um and i probably made it six different times with just different amounts of different things yeah yeah you know it's like i would make one i'm like no this is too bitter i need to like you know take take more of this thing that i know is making it better out and replace it with more of this just to to balance it out um did you use a verde sauce or did you use like a like more of a ranchero or like a i did a salsa roja roja okay yeah um and there's like you know and then you have to you have to kind of think about like what your audience is too so you want things to be as accessible as possible. Um, so like, you know, it's really easy for me to find lots and lots of varieties of dried peppers, mm-hmm. but like somebody in the middle of nowhere with like a kind of small grocery store, like a small, like rural grocery store, like is probably not going to get like the best selection if there are any dried peppers. Um, They're not going to be able to find, you know, guajillos or cascabels super easy. Yeah. Like they'll probably find anchos, and that's maybe it. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, that's something else I have to take into consideration sometimes. Like, well, I want to make this with five kinds of peppers, but I also have to make sure that it's going to taste good if you can only find the most common. Yeah, sure. And like, yeah, it won't be as whatever nuanced or balanced or whatever, but like, is it still good? Yeah, then that's fine. Like, cause it just has to be because I mean, that's how I learned how to cook. It's like, well, we don't have this you know, growing up in a small town in Maine. So we can't find that. So like, what's something close to it that I can find? I love the, like the improvisational part of it. It's like, well, hey, I don't have this. So let's figure out a way to like make it work with whatever you can find. Yeah. And, you know, I'll usually try to tell people like, oh, if you don't have this, you can do this or you can do that. Like I try to give people options, like, cause not everybody already has that knowledge base. Yeah. And it's like not always obvious. So sometimes you might come to a recipe and be like, well, I don't have like two of these things. I guess I can't make this. And it's like, you probably can make something close to it though. Right. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, I uh, want to talk about the comic industry. Um, you know, you just obviously release Chef's Kiss, you know, but, and you're part of the industry now. Giving you a crystal ball, what do you predict is going to happen in the comic industry over the next few years? And how would you like to see yourself playing a role in it? I mean, I see, you know, I see the, the, the book market being a really, really valuable part of the comics industry. And while not discounting, um, you know, comic shops, cause they're always my, my first love. Um, but like chef's kiss didn't actually technically do that well in comic shops. Um, the majority of our sales came from the book market. So like bookstores, um, libraries, um, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the online booksellers. Yeah. Um, like the, the lion's share of our, uh, of our sales came from like book distribution, not comic distribution. Mm -hmm. And like, that didn't surprise me at all just because like, it's, you know, it's queer, it's a romance. Like it's really more the kind of thing that like a kid that is used to going to Barnes and Noble and scoping out the manga section is going to go for, um, and so like, you know, there, I'm sure there are lots of, I, you know, I don't know every single comic shop. Most of the comic shops around me do have at least some manga. Some of them have more than others. Um, and like some people I think are kind of resistant to it, which is fine. 
you know, like run the shop that you would want to shop at yourself, but like, don't also begrudge like the customers and like the changing industry for not staying there with you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, and I, I tell like a lot of my friends that get frustrated with like how comics are going, like, have you thought about like pitching a graphic novel to like one of the comics publishers that has book distribution or pitching it to one of the book publishers that has a graphic novel like arm um and it's like it's just even even oni which is mostly a comic publisher like um really like even they were you know before like the big changes this summer they were really leaning more towards like the book market model right and i feel like that's just the smart way to go you know if you want to have books move (laughs) um yeah, floppies, floppies feels like a very frustrating thing. And it even, you know, it was when I was working in comic shops, um, you know, ordering was always like trying to do fucking alchemy, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because like every, an abacus. Yeah, yeah, really. I mean, you know, every publisher thinks they've got the hot new shit and like, you know, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, or sometimes like it just doesn't reach the audience that it was intended for just through any number of things you know like not being able to find it online like not you know like not marketing to the right people using weird language you know like whatever like there's so many so many ways that like a book heading to market can just like go wrong and flop that have nothing to do with the quality of the work do you um what are your thoughts on kind of like digital release because you know a lot of people have moved to comiXology, I certainly have just for space issues, but at the same time, I don't know what your opinions are. Comixology had a great interface and then it has now a really shitty interface. I just want to smash my iPad every time I have to do that, but uh, would love to get your take on, on digital as like an add-on to kind of the book distribution that you just mentioned. I mean, again, like it comes down to making that content accessible to people. Like you know, there, there are rural places that have the internet, but not like bookstores, you know, um, like, yeah, you can always order stuff on Amazon, but like, or you could have it right now digitally. And, you know, that's kind of the world that we're in right now. It's a lot of like instant gratification. Like I want this, I want it now I can get it now. Right. And like, there are people like, you know, myself included, like I love holding a book in my hands. I don't, you know, I don't think I'll ever stop buying like physical books. I think I'm just a little choosier in which ones I actually buy. And like, but digital, it's like, well, who cares? I just throw another, you know, memory card in there and so just have another 10,000 books that I'll never read. <laughs> now, there are a few ways that um, I think like the unlimited storylines, like X-Men Unlimited through uh, Marvel Unlimited, it, I keep saying the word unlimited, uh, that they are playing with the actual form of the phone in a way that's pretty interesting so that you can scroll through and feel like you've got a continuous story, unlike, you know, trying to navigate through each individually differently shaped tile, uh, you know, that's available on, on certain apps. Yeah. Which I I think is really smart because that's what the Webtoon model is basically, or the Webtoon format. Yeah. Which is really cool. Yeah. And I, and I love it. And, and the, you know, I, I was a, a judge for the Ringos this year um, or one of the jurors for the Ringos this year. And so I had to read like a ton of books from, from last year, which included a bunch of Webtoon stuff. And it's just mm-hmm. like, you know, and I was reading Webtoon stuff before I have a bunch of friends that have web comics there and stuff. So, but this was like, Oh, I have to read like a bunch of stuff that I like wouldn't necessarily go to myself. And it was all great. It's all formatted for that for that medium you know so it's just right. like hey, you just scroll through you read a chapter you swipe to the next chapter like they couldn't make it easier to like take in that content now obviously i know what the ringos are but could you explain to kaylin what those are <laughs> um the ringos are, are very nice um the ringos are one of the um three major comic awards um in the u.s i think it's the three there's the the um eisner's obviously the the harvey's and yeah. then the Ringos are kind of a newer one, um, um, named after uh, Mike Wiringo. R.I.P. Yes, They're not, uh, one of my favorite artists growing up. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. 
so we um i mentioned earlier we met at flame con which is one of my is my favorite con not one of mine it is my favorite con it is it's intimate uh it's friendly we get to talk to folks like you queer creators other queer fans it just feels like there's a more sense of community um can you talk a little bit about your perspective on queer representation in the comic industry where it is now and where you'd like to see it go you know it's we're we're in a better spot now than i think that we ever have been but there's always still room for things to get better um i will definitely agree with you and say that flame con is one of if not my favorite cons that i've ever been a part of this was my first year going and i remember thinking about like how i felt there and like i've after every con that has me out as a guest i try to like write a little like thank you like on facebook and and just kind of like reflect on the weekend and that was like you know the thing that i felt the most that whole time was just safe yeah Mm -hmm. yeah um i did a con since then where like (laughs) just the i had the most like bafflingly homophobic moment (laughs) what yeah okay we need details what happened if you'd like to share them you don't yeah i'm sorry sorry yeah Yeah, no 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 no. it wasn't it wasn't like it could have it could have been worse but it just like was not great um it it was really weird because this woman came up and she was interested in what i had when you've seen my table it's all queer stuff yeah for the most part it's like 99 queer stuff and then like some some stuff that i've done with friends and it's not ambiguously queer stuff no it's it's not like it's secretly gay (laughs) no my 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 banner is a six six by three foot piece of vinyl with two guys on a date sharing a milkshake. Like, (laughs) I think you know what I'm about if you come up to my table. The only thing sub about this text is me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, This woman came up and she was, uh, she was looking through stuff and she was asking me questions about it. And, and she wanted to get something queer for a friend of hers but then like the stuff I had was either like not queer enough or too queer, what? which was fine. Like it was okay. fine. You know, it's whatever. Like I don't expect to make a sale every single time someone comes up to my table. Like that wasn't the issue. It was just like very frustrating. Cause it's like, well, then I don't fucking know what you want then. Like, I guess there's nothing here for you and you can just go. Right. But then the last thing that she said before she left was, Oh, and if my son comes to your table, don't tell me. Jesus. Like it would be too much for her to find out in this way that her son was maybe gay. Like that was what I gleaned from that comment. And I was just like, it's very bizarre. That's very weird. What a weird person. Yeah. And again, she was too stunned to speak. So she just walked away. And I just looked at my friends who was sitting next to Andy Price and Katie Cook. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, how did you not just jump over the table and strangle her? And I was like, well, it's against the law still. So yeah, (laughs) that was kind of for now, but once we get in power, Oh, we're getting queer revenge. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We say that that's not what we're going to do. Right. Yeah. That that actually is indeed the gay agenda. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, No, I, I uh, appreciate you mentioning about like flame con being a safe space. Look, I've been a comic fan most of my life and like, Going to comic stores, you know, uh, oftentimes are sexist, racist, homophobic places when I was growing up and like just feeling very like um, othered, even in a hobby that I really loved or like, you know, in this world that I really loved. uh, And I still felt very like isolated. And so growing up and having like a place where, hey, we can all just be cool and chill with one another and like, just like let our guard down a little bit just feels great. I'm sorry that you had that experience. It's fine, you know, like, and I'm obviously purposely not naming the con because otherwise everything was great. Obviously they don't have control over every person that's walking that floor like that. They have absolutely nothing to do with it. So they don't need to be named. And I didn't even bring it up to any of the staff because it was just like, what, what? You can't, you can't control every customer, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was just like, this is one shitty lady being shitty and that is fine. Like that's between me and her. Um, and that rarely happens though. But like, it was very funny because it was like, I had FlameCon and then like a month later I had this one. It was just like, oh man, like I was just reflecting on how safe I felt at this show. And like, I would never think that someone would come up to me and say something even remotely like problematic 
<laughs> you know, at SlameCon. And that hasn't really been the case for other shows either. Like I've never really had like people be shitty at me at cons generally. Like there have been a couple here and there, but like, you know, probably done a few hundred shows in my career. Like, you know, I've been, I've been in the comics industry for, for over a decade now um, in various capacities. It's just kind of recently that I started actually writing comics. Um, So I've done at least of two or 300 shows. Wow. Yeah. Um, Cause there was a period like where I was doing like 20 to 25 shows a year um, pre COVID. Uh, and, you know. and then 40 to 45 shows uh, during COVID because you're an anti-vaxxer, right? Is that? Of course, absolutely. Yeah. Staunchly. Yeah. This is our rumor start by Brett and Wingate yeah. on the podcast. So. <laughs> when it comes no. to, Oh, sorry, please go on. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. So it, it's it's very rare that anything like that happens. It's just something that you, I think, like, as a queer person or of any, any marginalized group, um, you're just kind of aware of your otherness when you're in, like, spaces like other big shows that aren't specifically catered towards, like, a queer audience or, or yeah. you know, whatever. It's like, yeah, there's going to be people here that just don't agree with my right to live. <laughs> yeah. And you probably won't run into them but you're, you're aware that they're there. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to the industry as a whole, you know, we're kind of, as you mentioned, it's getting better. We're seeing more create queer creators getting a chance to write stories, but there isn't the, the, the lineage, there isn't a, the tradition of queer creators being given these opportunities. So there's not as much mentorship. There's not as much people who are looking out for new people who are starting are there things that the industry could be doing more to help support the creators and stories that, you know, maybe are a little bit um, uh, off the beaten path, but it could be, uh, you know, pitched better to audiences than they're doing now? I, you know, it's not even just an industry thing. I think it's just like a society thing at this point, you know, um, I was talking with a friend the other day and they were talking about how they had a pitch um, that got, kind of flagged because they were like well we don't know if this is like really appropriate for for kids and it was because it had uh two men kissing in it and they were like okay well uh here's every fucking disney movie ever that has a straight couple kissing in it right yeah so why is this inappropriate for kids and they were like, yeah, you know what? You're right. This is fine. And they, they backed off. But it's just like, that shouldn't have even been a fucking conversation. Like, well, in 2022? It's crazy. It, it is. And, I, well, I'm glad that they backed down. It just makes me think of, um, you know, in Florida. Uh, thank God I don't live there. Yeah. But, um, you know, the don't, gay say, don't say gay uh, legislation that, you know, Governor DeSantis signed. And, you know, on our on our on our Twitter, you know, I run our Twitter account and I put out, you know, this is utter bullshit, especially with Disney sort of, you know, sort of waffling on everything. And they're like homophobes have come out. Well, well, I don't think that, you know, kids should be exposed to this stuff. They're just kids. It's like, well, this is, we're not talking about hardcore pornography. We're talking about the entire concept of queerness of like your teacher could be queer. You know, you could have queer parents, queer relatives for sure, you know, queerness itself. And to your point, Jared, you know, in Disney movies and like in, 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 in all kinds of children fiction, you have this, uh, you know, heteronormative like relationships happening uh, and like nobody blinks an eye, but when it's two men or two women, or, you know, it's somebody who's transgender or whatever um, it becomes, it becomes now dangerous for kids. And that is, it is such a slippery slope of, you know, them just to your point, uh, not wanting us to exist or be alive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, it, it's, it's two people loving each other, you know, like what that's not confusing, you know, right. it's only confusing if you make it confusing. Your kids are very adaptable. They figure this out very easily and they're like, Oh yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's yeah. It's, it's yeah. Adults need a timeout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. All right. We got a little heavy there. Let's, let's get back into some fun stuff. Um, 
do you have any interest in writing superhero comics and why is it the X-Men? Reminder, we're an X-Men podcast. Of course. Um, yeah, I, I, I am interested in it. It's not something that I'm like, like, I probably have a bunch of superhero pitches, like somewhere in the back of my head where I'll be like, oh, that would be a great Teen Titan story. Or like, that would be a great, you know, whatever. Yeah. That would be a great X-Men story. Um, and, uh, I just don't, I don't know. It's not the end game for me. Like, yeah, I would love it, you know, and I would do a good job I think I hope (laughs) you know um but it's it's never really been yeah it's never really been my main goal I think like this sounds so cocky but really it's just like I think somebody at one of the two companies would have to just like ask me if I wanted to pitch something yeah because I was like I'm just not gonna I don't care I don't care enough to beg for work like I can just make my own stuff Uh, you know and it's just like it's not it's not as important to me to tell stories like through the lens of someone else's creations yeah yeah you know like i would love to play in that sandbox and i have you know i have um you know like the murder hobo stuff i did like that's not mine that's my friend joe's you know and that like that was fun though (laughs) you know because it's like my buddy and not a multi-billion dollar corporation that doesn't really care if I live or die. Yeah, so um, I wanna switch gears entirely. Uh, let's move into some games. Kaylin, how do you feel about games? Uh, why do I feel like I'm in Saw right now? Kaylin feels so, great about games, all right. How do you feel about games, Jared, more importantly? Terrified and on edge. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> all right, the, the food industry is always rich with trends, fads, and controversies that make people very opinionated uh, and very angry. I love them because it's harmless fun and you can hate your neighbors for something that doesn't really matter. Uh, So we're gonna play a game of the hottest of hot opinions called Takeout. I'm gonna list a controversy and I want you to hear on a scale of one to 10, how strongly you feel about this food issue. Uh, So one is not at all and 10 that this has your blood boiling. You wanna take this thing out. All right. First. All right. So in June of this year, TikTok user Chef Pi announced the creation of pink sauce, a shockingly pink condiment made from dragon fruit, honey, chili pepper, garlic, sunflower seed oil, and milk. Controversy followed because of packaging issues, inconsistency of color from batch to batch, and ingredient mislabeling and proportions. Oh, she also had a failure to get FDA approval, um, and it looks like Pepto-Bismol. How much did you feel about this issue? That was like the sweet, sweet comeuppance of just like not taking the right steps to sell a food product. Yeah. Like, yeah, that like, that's awful that you learned all of that the super fucking hard way. But like, what did you think was going to happen? You can't just make food and sell it wherever you want. Like there are processes for this so that people don't get like violently ill. Yeah. What does she think the F and FDA means? <laughs> yeah, like it was just like this is not this is not like a school bake sale. It's like I think even those have are more regulated than <laughs> the wild west. Yeah. It is like people on TikTok just making whatever the hell they want and saying like, here you should buy some. Like, oof. all right, so scale of one to ten. Where's where does this make you fall on? I want to get rid of this in society. I mean, like. Yeah, that's probably going to be like a seven or so. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just come on. (laughs) So in 2018, the New York Times broke the food internet by posting a guacamole recipe that included peas in it. Yeah, I remember that. That was definitely a, that was a 10. That was a 10. Thank you for saying that. Oh my (laughs) God. I wanted to murder somebody when I saw that. Yeah. Like, just don't call it that. It's not guacamole anymore. Yeah. The thing I didn't like was that it was like, okay, it's a, it's a perfectly fine guacamole recipe with one glaring error, but that glaring error was like half a pound of peas. It wasn't a trivial amount of peas in there. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. It wasn't just the peas. That was the problem. It was the fact that they cooked the jalapenos or they like, they grilled the jalapenos. It's fresh jalapenos. Why did you grill the jalapenos for guacamole? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, like the whole thing with like stuff like that and pico de gallo is that you're like celebrating the freshness of the ingredients and stuff. Like it's supposed to be very simple and rely heavily on like the quality of whatever is in it. Exactly. And it was just like, this isn't even the thing. All right, Kayla, let's get you in this one too. One scale, one to 10. Do you want to throw it out? For the guacamole? Take it out. Yeah. 18. It's an 18 <laughs> out of one to 10. Fuck that. Fuck the New York Times. And Jared? He said oh, 10. 10. Oh, 10. Okay. Yeah. All right. So similarly, Queer Eye Star uh, and food expert, Anthony, I can't pronounce his last name, freaked people out when he said he likes to use Greek yogurt instead of sour cream in his guacamole and was later vindicated on an episode when a 72-year-old Hispanic woman said she loves to use sour cream, dad, creaminess. How did you feel about this controversy? Oh, I've, I've, uh, sometimes I've gotten like avocados that aren't like quite ripe enough, but it's just like, they taste fine. And, uh, they just need like a little, a little creaminess. extra something for, yeah. for creaminess. Like I have definitely done sour cream. I've done yogurt. I've done mayonnaise before, like, but also I'm Latino. I do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> That's my a kind of t-shirt. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Caleb, did you have any feelings on that? Uh, it's fine. I mean, like, look, Trader Joe's has their, like, Greek yogurt guacamole. I think it's okay. It's not my favorite to go to, but it's, like, if it, you know, to Jared's point, if the avocados aren't, like, you know, mushy enough, like, you're going to need something. It yeah. was definitely, for me, a thing that I felt, oh, why are you substituting a thing that shouldn't be there? And then I felt so wrong later. So I'm, I'd give it a three. I think that's, that's a one. Right. Yeah. Uh, last month, the Monterey Bay Aquarium's Seafood Watch Program downgraded American lobster to its red list because of issues with sustainability and in the environmental impact when harvesting. This upset the Maine lobster industry, which claims that they've made safety improvements to prevent right whales from being injured or killed in their gear lines. The first take I want, um, are lobsters just gross sea bugs? No, they're delicious okay. sea bugs. Yeah, so I want to throw that opinion out. Uh, they're delicious, delicious sea bugs. <laughs> yes. And two, can you rank the seafood watches ranking scale, which puts lobsters in the red list, as if that's supposed to sound like a bad thing? That's a lot of ranking. Ranking a ranking? Yeah. Okay, all right. Wait, so... They say they say we're putting American lobster in the red list. It's the red lobster? Which is a bad thing. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that a confusing list? That's my only point here. Cheddar biscuit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is a confusing list. Um, all right, last one. An evergreen issue. Does pineapple belong on pizza? Yes. All right, well, that's been a nice interview, but uh, <laughs> it was really great to talk to you. <laughs> all right, Brent's just joking. What a josher. Uh, all right, so we're going to do a quick fire round. Uh, we want to just get your favorite. So first thing comes to mind, you don't have to feel stumped. Uh, favorite restaurant? Oh, that's way too hard, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah hey, but but he said you don't have to feel stumped, so. <laughs> I oh, oh, I don't have to feel stumped. I just will feel stumped. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I can answer that. I like, I eat so based on mood. Like my favorite restaurant could be different at different times of the day. Do you have a favorite Mexican restaurant at the very least? We've talked a lot I, about Mexican food, so I'm just curious. Yeah, there, um, there's a really great place by me called Tenoch, um, and they make the best tortas, I think, in the entire Boston area. Nice. Well, that's yeah. a free shout out to them. Yeah, love yeah. tortas. Uh, favorite cocktail? Oh, that's, that's easier. Um, I really like an old-fashioned. Classic choice. Yeah. But Can't also- wrong really any kind of mule any whatever like a kentucky mule so bourbon with ginger beer like any booze and ginger beer i am on board so my favorite is a mezcal mule just because i love mezcal yeah uh, and so i was recently in wisconsin i was texting brent this i had an old-fashioned at this italian restaurant i went to and they made it with brandy which i'd never had before instead of like bourbon or rye and it was good a little too sweet yeah. And I found out that apparently in Wisconsin, like they drink brandy by like the barrel full. Weird. Yeah, yeah. I think they're, I think they invented the brandy Alexander, which is just brandy and ice cream basically <laughs> blended up together. That sounds delicious. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Sugary as hell, but very, very good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, favorite graphic novel. 
Oh my God. These are awful questions. Yeah, <laughs> I'm an awful person. I'm sorry, Garrett. You're a monster. Yeah. Um, well, maybe make you make more controversy by saying your least favorite. Oh, uh, really, no. really hurt your no, reputation. No, no, yeah. no, no. We're not going to be mean. Or a favorite, one that you really enjoy. Um, dang. It's hard because <laughs> this is so awful. There, there are definitely like graphic novels that had like a really big impact on me when I was like younger. And then like those people have since been canceled for being monsters. So it's like, yeah, well, I have a well, few of those too. So I get it. Yeah. And it's like, well, that will always be special to me, but now I don't feel comfortable even reading it. Yeah. <laughs> um, dang. Well, if you're, if this is stressing you out, don't worry. We've only got 18 more of these left Sick. to get through. And they get harder and harder. <laughs> Favorite parent. Actually, yeah. that was really easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is something that I go back to again and again? You should know this. You did your research, right? What do I read? A Watchmen. Uh, you read a lot of manga. That Earth is world. true. Um no one reads our world except for you, Brent. I'm just, I'm uh, uh, 300. You, you. Oh, no, <laughs> what? Hank Miller is so canceled. <laughs> you said Rob Layfield was your fave, right? Oh, no, this is a any, any run by him. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ. Chuck Austin, right? Ugh. Okay. Oh, All right. We, we won't stump you anymore. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll move to our, uh, our merry fuck kill round, which is easier. So it's just three choices. Love that. All right. So. Mary fuck kill appetizer main course dessert Mary main course fuck dessert kill appetizer can respect that uh yeah I agree thank you I don't know why that it's such a weird question it's so abstract actually I, I think I'd probably <laughs> kill dessert and not a, I don't have much of a sweet tooth but I think I would marry main course and fuck appetizer all right. Because appetizers aren't supposed to stick around, right? They're just like, you know. Your side piece. They're a side yeah. piece. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, very autobiographical to you, Ben, Liam, and Chef Davis. Mary fuck kill. Dang. Probably Mary Liam. Fuck Ben. Kill Davis. that sounds right and then finally waffles pancakes and french toast oh that's a good one uh let's see probably marry french toast fuck waffles kill pancakes that's the right answer well done Wait, pancakes really? Are the that... worst. Pancakes are the worst. <laughs> pancakes stink. I don't even. It's soggy. Yeah, yeah. It's like I want exactly a third of a pancake. Yes. And that's it. Like, yeah. I, yeah. Because you get through that first third when it's like still hot and the syrup hasn't like slurped into it yet. And like it's great. And then it's just kind of a chore after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's really. Like a sludge. It, yeah, it's like this mapley, like paste in your mouth Ugh. yeah anyways well okay jared we're at the very end of our conversation today I want to thank you for Wait, we have another fun question well, list as many digits of pie as possible oh. <laughs> <laughs> apple <laughs> cherry blueberry boy <laughs> um all right okay uh thank you so much for joining our creator crush uh as a reminder folks chef's kiss is published by oni press you can get it uh wherever graphic novels are sold if your comic store doesn't have it they suck Go find it at a bookstore or Amazon or Comixology. Uh, and Jarrett, uh, where can our listeners find you? And is there anything else you'd like to plug that we didn't talk about today? Um, first of all, if you do go to your comic shop and they don't have it, make Burn them it order down. it. Okay. <laughs> Boost those diamond numbers, damn it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find me at Jamarmel, J-A-M-A-R-M-E-L uh, on Instagram at Jarrett Melendez on Twitter. 
Um, and yeah, actually, uh, this summer I was in the uh, Young Men in Love um, anthology that uh, Wave Blue World put out, and it is delightful. It's full of really cute stories. Um, I worked with Josh Cornion on mine, and Josh also has um, a really beautiful story that he wrote and illustrated himself. And there are ton exclusively queer creators um, uh, took part in creating this book. So yeah, every purchase is supporting a, like a stack, a whole stack of us. That's awesome. Yeah. We haven't read that yet, so we definitely will. And we got to meet Josh at FlameCon as well. Phenomenal artist. So that's can't wait to read it. Yeah. Yeah. Josh and I are chatting about maybe doing something together in the future. So I'm very excited about that. I love, love, love working with him and I love all of his stuff. Very so, yeah, fun. that's it. I, you gave me the chance to plug myself and I plug my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Very uh, magnanimous of you. Uh, okay, that's it uh, for us. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Homo Superior X and on Instagram at Homo Superior Podcast. We've got our Bar Sinister cocktail series in the middle of its season two. Uh, we also come out with regular episodes every Friday. It's gay. If you have any writers, artists, uh, you know, news or comic culturistas that you'd like to hear us chat with, just slide into our DMs. We accept dick pics. We accept food pics. We're all about it here. Pull pics? No. Uh, we've been Homo <laughs> Superior. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs>